0: Welcome to the Wirecard Saga, a podcast with Tom Fox and Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director of Institutional Ethics and Integrity at Affiliated Monitors. Over this podcast series, we're going to take a deep dive into the Wirecard Saga to see where it may take us literally across the globe. Mikhail Ryder-Gordon and myself continue our exploration into the Wirecard Accounting Fraud with the episode On the Beach, and we take a look at the hundreds of shell companies involved in Wirecard and how they were used to facilitate a massive money laundering scam for well over a decade. Hello everyone, Tom Fox back with Mikhail Ryder-Gordon for another episode in our continued exploration of the ongoing saga that is Wirecard. Today, on the beach, not the novel about nuclear holocaust, but on the beach looking for shell companies. Mikhail, first of all, welcome back.
1: Uh, Thank you, Tom. It's always a pleasure to be back with with you and the Compliance Podcast Network. So, thank you.
0: So, uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we were together, and uh, I've been following the news. I know there's some developments in the Wirecard case. What has (laughs) caught your attention?
1: Oh, golly. Okay. Well, um, yeah, another 10 days, another bombshell or two or three or four. Ah, oh, wow. Well, listeners, um, we really prepped you well with our last couple of episodes. remember the other week we had Wirecard Masala. Uh, episode nine, we talked about the dodgy deals, Wirecard executives uh, in India via Mauritius-based shell company got up to. And the week before that, I think uh, we covered lawyers, guns, and money, right? Episode 8, we talked about some of the enablers, particularly the auditors and lawyers surrounding Wirecard. Okay, so here we go. Remember KPMG was brought in to do some forensic accounting on the Wirecard Asia accounts? They who identified the, the billion-plus that was never was? Well, folks, oh, this past few days... News broke of KPMG's involvement with Wirecard in not quite so flattering a light. If you're collecting trading cards of the big four, you've now got three of the four EY, they who managed to miss all of this fraud and money laundering for an entire decade, Deloitte, auditor of Wirecard Turkey and its fraudulent MCA deals, and now, folks, KPMG walks over to the side of shame. Why? News broke that KPMG forgot, forgot to mention, when they were being retained to examine Wirecard's Asia accounts, oh, yeah, oops, they forgot to mention they were also the auditor of that Mauritius company, that Mauritanian company, not Mauritius, Mauritius company, identified as a suspicious vehicle through which those questionable Wirecard India acquisitions were run. It totally slipped KPMG's mind that they were auditor of MF, the Emerging Market Investment Fund 1A. Remember MF? Okay, listeners, and if you're just tuning in and you don't know about MF, go back and listen to episodes 8 and 9 at minimum. Okay, and wait, there is more. KPMG also served as an advisor on one of the Indian deals, but for the MF side. Subsequent to the deal, one of the KPMG partners involved in advising on that deal left that firm to join Ameth. (laughs) Oh, and then there's that little matter of KPMG apparently having also been hired by one of the sellers of great Indian retail, parent of Git and Hermes. Let me listen to episode nine if you can't remember. Yeah, so what exactly did they do? KPMG got hired uh, <clears throat> with respect to one of the actual Indian sales deals. They were commissioned to perform, wait for it, folks, vendor due diligence. <laughs> like, seriously, you cannot make this guano up. KPMG essentially investigated the very deals where it was the auditor to the pass-through shell company, the deals were being run through, and for which they performed due diligence for one of the parties involved in that deal. Did you get all that? Supposedly, KPMG didn't bother to mention their involvement with MF, as they didn't think disclosing it that they were auditors to the very offshore company used as a vehicle for the dirty deals as relevant. They also apparently argued that it would have violated the law had KPMG's forensic audit team looking into Wirecard Asia, the one that led the dirty deals in Asia, in India, been given any information from the KPMG MF audit team. One wonders what it would take for one of these professional service firms to find an activity relevant. How many professional service firms does it take to enable a crooked public company and it's fraud? It's like a setup to a bad bar joke. Okay, well, we'll come back to MF and the enablers in a moment. Let's stay, let's stay focused on KPMG just for another minute, or rather their forensic report. Now, this next development really shouldn't come as much of a shock. Recall that it was the public announcement uh, of the gist of the KPMG report that finally brought the Wirecard House of Cards down. And that all that happened, right, this past June? Doesn't it feel like a lifetime ago? Okay. So now, transpires, KPMG informed Wirecard's supervisory board back in March and early April of this year that they couldn't find the necessary evidence to refute those allegations those pesky short sellers and journalists were levying about Wirecard. The board then instructed Wirecard executives, good old Herr Braun and Marsalik and company, that a press release intended for issuance on April 22nd should include at minimum the fact that KPMG had identified that documents were missing Wirecard's business partners were uncooperative. KPMG had identified some pretty serious deficiencies in Wirecard's operations. And it didn't really look that they were going to be able to clear the company of those swirling allegations involving its APAC businesses. Unfortunately, apparently Braun and company just completely ignored the instructions from the board. You know, the way executives do. Like reckless t- teenagers ignoring their parents' explicit instruction not to go joyriding with other people's cars, Wirecard's executives lied to investors. I know, shocking, right? They didn't include any of the information the board told them to include, and uh, they blamed instead Wire- uh, They blamed KPMG for delaying the publication of their audit findings even though it was Wirecard's board who had authorized additional time to the auditors. And then they prevaricated. Braun sat on this damning information for an entire trading day. After telling the market that KPMG had delayed the publication results, lie one, but had, quote, to date not identified any substantive findings, lie two. The result, Wirecard's share price went up more than 10% because, well, the market had confidence, right? Nothing had been found. (laughs) After all, the CEO was saying this, and this was supposed to be a press release blessed by the board. Needless to say, the board was a little shocked to discover the public deception when they received their copy of the press release after Braun made it public. Now, one wonders what the supervisory board was thinking all along, The chair of the board up until January of this year was Wolf Matthias. Uh, He was a career banker with some pretty strong connections to Austria. (laughs) Sure he was. Which is a funny coincidence. Remember the ties Marsalik is said to have had with Austrian intelligence? As another board member, Stefan Klestel, happens to be the son of a former Austrian president. Now, Klestel's bio states he holds 20-plus years of experience in fintech and international payments and banking. Hmm, and it took him a decade not to see this? And KPMG's information came as a surprise to him? Really? Also on the board, Thomas Eichelman, who also happens to be thought of as an expert in fintech, and he was the one who selected KPMG, so he must have had some misgivings sufficient to want to bring in a forensic accounting team from outside. What does all this mean? Well, at the moment, It's just yet more evidence for German prosecutors to charge Braun with market manipulation. But Herr Braun, who insists he is innocent, is looking less and less the innocent dupe. And one can't help but wonder how comfortable members of the supervisory board are feeling right now themselves. Hmm. So let's let's turn now to how the Bundestags Investigative Committee is doing. Right? Remember, they convened, they convened the beginning of the hearings a couple of weeks ago, and um, those hearings, a daily event. So first up, bad news for short sellers. Recall that when Munich claimed it was dropping its investigation into the reporters from the Financial Times who broke the wirecard fraud, in a speech, they had suggested the investigation of the short sellers would also be dropped, Oh, no, 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 no. Remember, Felix Haufeld of Boffin had even acknowledged the important role short sellers had played in identifying fraud and money laundering at Wirecard. He had sheepishly admitted, come, you know, last August that, oh, yeah, well, okay, maybe they had a point. Well, not so fast. In a transcript from the hearings going on in the Bundestag, and this was on the October 19th hearing, When MPs question the German federal government as to the status of its investigation regarding possible insider trading, the federal government acknowledged that the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office has not dropped its investigation of the short sellers. That's right. They're still targeting the short sellers that drew attention to this massive money laundering scheme. You know, the one where wire cards activities defrauded investors out of some 20 billion euros. But the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office, they are not backing down. Investigation of the short sellers continues. On the positive, the government does now acknowledge that HIT has also opened investigations into some of the Boffin personnel on suspicion of insider trading and the unlawful disclosure of inside information. So, hey, short sellers... Thanks for drawing attention to this massive fraud. Take heart, we're now lumping you in with staff from our oversight agency who appear to have actually engaged in insider trading. Now, when the Bundestag's investigative committee asked Boffin officials what knowledge they actually possessed of collusion between short sellers and journalists of the Financial Times and where they maybe obtained said information, and again, the IC wanted specifics, the who, the when, the where, and who had Boffin shared this information with? Boffin's response was, and this is a quote, after careful consideration, oof, always a bad starter, of various laws, Boffin's reached the conclusion that if the facts were known, it could endanger the investigation. And therefore, Boffin has invoked national security laws and claimed they've imposed classified status on the information and related the documentation and sent it off to the secret protection office of the Bundestag, although not before suggesting that Wirecard employees may have passed along information to short sellers. When asked why they imposed a ban on short sellers of Wirecard stock, Boffin told the IC that they thought any price loss or high volatility involving Wirecard stock prices would threaten market confidence. And wait for this. By extension, and here I'm translating their quote from German, have a trend-enhancing effect resulting in the loss of market confidence in Germany in its own right. Uh-huh. They claim the entire German market was threatened from the shorting of Wirecard stock. They then invoked an opinion by ESMA's Board of Supervisors, dated back from February of 29, where ESMA had apparently confirmed that the circumstances, as Boffin had described it to them, constituted adverse events or developments which could pose a serious threat to market confidence in Germany as a country within the meaning of Article 20. Now, this is an EU regulation, for those of you really keeping track, EU Reg 236-2012, These are the EU regs around short selling and credit default swaps. Only the key to these regulations is that they specifically say they are to be used only in exceptional circumstances. They were drafted in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. So Reg 236-2012 bans uncovered short sales in shares, and in particular covered shares traded on a regulated market or multilateral trading facility, an exemption applies for shares that are principally traded outside the EU but also traded on an EU trading venue. And it requires public disclosure of the short position whenever the position exceeds or falls below the, the, you know a certain percentage, the share capital, so on and so forth. And if you're keeping track, you can always you can always look it up or email us and we'll give you the details. All disclosures must include the identity of the person holding the short position. okay, fair enough. But Article 20 reiterates that it is to be invoked only in extreme circumstances, like CDSs bringing down an entire country's financial system. The powers are subject to a proportionality test where the price of a financial instrument has fallen significantly, and for liquid shares, a fall of at least 10% is required, within a trading day, and national regulators, the Germans in this case, would be able to restrict or prohibit the short selling of that instrument for one trading day. Genuine emergencies, like France imposing a one-month ban on short selling due to the pandemic, yes, that falls within the parameters. But the Germans, permanent imposition (laughs) of short selling on Wirecard stock? Yeah, that's not what they envisioned. Um, yeah, well, somebody said something mean about one of our listed companies, and now the stock's being shorted. <laughs> now, the IC hearings continued to heat up. The grilling of the government really got going after, after this, as if this wasn't enough with Baffin. on just exactly who knew what when regarding a wire card's fraud. Now, a few weeks ago, a Berlin newspaper leaked that EY had warned the German auditor's supervisory authority, APIS. And for those of you keeping track, APIS is housed under the German Federal Ministry of Economics and Energy. But at any rate, it came out that EY warned APIS back on February 13, 2019. Now, note that date, folks a full year and a half before KPMG's forensic report is issued. Apparently, it was on a phone call between Appis and EY and this is EY's Wirecard audit team managers talking to Appis. Now, the call was taking place against the background of the critical press coverage of Wirecard, right? This is this is one of Dan Macron's big stories on Wirecard and it was focused particularly on that activity. Uh, that was the fraudulent activity in Wirecard Asia. EY warns APSA of alleged irregularities in Wirecard AG's 2018 annual and consolidated financial statements. This was APSA's response to the investigative committee of the Bundestag who said, what the hell? Or why didn't you do something about this when EY told you? Opus Opus tells the IC, our statutory mandate is to verify compliance with the professional obligations of statutory auditors in connection with the conduct of statutory audits of companies of public interest in accordance with the German commercial code. Listeners, wakey-wakey, I know. That was the response. The statutory mandate of Opus is not aimed at detecting errors in accounting, they claimed. So uh the IC said, uh, don't you have an obligation to report it nonetheless to another regulatory body? Well, yeah, technically they do. You see, Opus didn't report this information to Boffin or any other enforcement body. Why not? Whilst the IC believes that OPUS does have an obligation, Opus, in their response to the IC, said, Well, under German law, you know, well whilst we're entitled to pass this information along, quote, if the supervisory activities of OPUS provide confidential information necessary for the performance of the respective tasks of other bodies, such as Boffin, OPUS may transmit this information to those bodies. However, according to our assessment, such information was not obtained from the telephone call with EY. Therefore, No reason to pass this information along to Boffin. So EY tells office there are material irregularities, but that wasn't sufficient information to pass along to the regulator responsible for oversight of this particular public traded company. Oh, well, okay. Then rightly, you sat on your hands, office. Perfectly reasonable response. And as the IC has now asked Opus, we understand, right, there are specific rules that instruct you to tell the auditor who to go report this to. Why didn't you? Opus fudged and hummed and hawed and then didn't come up with an answer. And the IC says, yeah, you'll need to get back to us with that one. Way to phone it in, Opus. <laughs> Pun intended. Pun intended. Now, the IC also identified that it appears whistleblower complaint packages were likely available to EY back in February 2019, at the same time they spoke to Opus. But hey, no need to rush into action, right? Oh, you'd think that'd be enough, but no. Folks, there is more. So much can happen in just a few days. Handelsblatt the same paper that broke the EY phone call story to office, came out a few weeks ago with another jaw-dropper. According to Handelsblatt, some 250 Wirecard employees were involved in concealing the company's accounting irregularities. You heard it. 250 employees Remember back in Episode 7 where we talked about Administrator Yaffa's observations that a fraction of Wirecard staff was actually in any way necessary to the company? And remember our ongoing theme, Wirecard was never intended to be profitable in any legitimate sense? Well, some 250 Wirecard employees are alleged to have systematically deceived Wirecard Supervisory Board and also the auditors. Now, that's what I call a conspiracy. Handelsblatt identified transaction logs used by these employees available on the Wirecard trading sheet. Now, these transaction overviews were sent monthly in PDF format to around 250 employees. The PDFs were titled Payment and Risk Monthly Reportings and provided these employees with information about the actual figures of the company. Now, Handelsblatt was happy to point out that Wirecard managers could have easily compared the figures in the payment and risk monthly reportings with the Wirecard publicly presented figures. You see, the payment and risk monthly reportings provided these employees with information about the actual figures of Wirecard. Okay, listen to these figures closely, folks. According to the documents, And Handelsblatt got hold of a fair volume of these. Wirecard generated about 72% of its total volume of 8.6 billion euros in February 2020 from its 10 largest customers. And remember, those customers include those illegal online casinos we've been talking about for so long. In total, Wirecard handled a volume of 61.3 billion euro in 2019, the figures presented by the company to the public painted a markedly different picture. For instance, a quarterly statement from January to September 2019 alone stated a total of $124 billion. Hmm? More than half of the transaction volume communicated in these reports was therefore falsified. As the paper so cap- capably observed, quote, Actually, when everyone looked at the monthly transaction overviews, it should have been noticeable, noticeable that something was wrong. 250 plus employees, all conspiring. Yeah, and it was meant to be a legitimate company, really? And then on the news front, a sell-off, right? More sell-off of wirecard bits and pieces, Wirecard North American subsidiary was bought by U.S. company Syncope. Now, they're renaming the Wirecard entity Northline Technologies to distance it from the stench coming from the rotting carcass of the parent company. And then, remember, we mentioned that Wirecard UK and Ireland, that entity that nobody even knew existed for many, many years? Well, that Bulgarian-based company, remember Christo Georgiev? Well, Paynet's. A Bulgarian-based company has purchased Wirecard UK and Ireland, with the EVP of Wirecard Global Sales, uh, Laura McCracken, raving, calling the Bulgarians a white knight. Bulgaria, where corruption is endemic. Thank goodness they didn't have to shut up shop of the troubled UK and Irish entity. Now Boris and Natasha won't have to go through the hassle of identifying a new payment processor so relieved and speaking of the uk ireland heck even bulgaria let's turn back to the enablers and the offshore entity MF. because today's topic well it's a lovely fall day where i am so i thought it would be pleasant to walk the beach with wirecard and pick up shell companies today's theme offshore and shell companies and how they factor into Wirecard and its related entities and its many suspect business partners. Let's start off with what exactly a shell company is and what is meant by offshore. I mean, that's for those of you who don't know and the rest of you, well, you've heard it before and it's just a good reminder. First up, okay, a shell company is so named because it's largely an entity with no actual business operations no employees, it doesn't generate any revenue or assets, it's it's, it's merely a shell. It is this outer husk, if you will, that gives it value because it can provide anonymity. The ultimate beneficial owners of the company can remain hidden behind the company or behind a chain of interconnected shell companies, usually strung across multiple jurisdictions. So, There are versions of shell companies, such as letterbox companies designed to be registered in one jurisdiction, whilst substantive economic activity of the company takes place elsewhere, usually for the purposes of avoiding those pesky labor laws or complying with mandatory contribution schemes. And there are also special purpose entities, which is another kind of shell company. And SBE's core business is group financing or holding activities. And again, like a standard shell company, no employees, no physical presence, and whatever assets the SPE holds or investments coming in from other jurisdictions. And they're sometimes used for tax avoidance purposes. But, for example, like MF in Mauritius, SPEs can be used to conceal, conceal dirty deals. Now, shell companies can be created using a registered agent as a layer in front of it. Anonymous shareholders can then buy shares in the shell company, sufficient to take it over and then elect to merge it with yet another private company. Now, there are plenty of, there are plenty of um legitimate reasons to establish a shell company, but that will not be what we're delving into uh, today because, well, <laughs> let's face it, there's not too much legitimate about Wirecard at this juncture. I think we know that. So we often talk about shell companies in concert with offshore locations and tropical islands come to mind, right? Balmy breezes and palm trees swaying. But offshore just means not in home jurisdiction. It's kind of like cloud computing just means it's not on your computer, it's on somebody else's. Okay, so offshore just means it's not in the home jurisdiction. You know who the two of the world's best destinations are to establish a shell company? because of their lax or non-existent mandatory beneficial ownership disclosure laws? Any guess, folks? The U.S. and Britain. Yay, number one and number two. Financial crimes that generate a lot of cash, be it trafficking of all manner of illicit people and products, fraud such as binary option schemes, proceeds of forced prostitution, porn, gambling, extortion, kleptocracy, and the predicate crime of money laundering are not new. But they have grown vastly in prevalence. And kleptocrats, remember our discussion of Russian laundering? Okay. Kleptocrats and organized crime just love sending the revenue from their illicit activities offshore to be laundered and invested in countries with strong rule of law, democratic institutions, deep financial markets. And it's a model that allows for the storing of the proceeds in free and democratic countries like the UK and the US and Ireland and Luxembourg, where the rule of law and reliable institutions serve to actually protect these ill-gotten gains, right? So these same destinations where incorporation transparency is lax, they're also the destinations where you find some of the best facilitators, right? Incorporation agents, lawyers, accountants, investment managers, and others who are not subject to suspicious transaction reporting, And they can be found in all their competent abundance in these places. Now, to understand the damage some of this does, the U.S. Treasury estimates that the U.S. $300 billion a year is laundered in the U.S. alone. And folks, that excludes, excludes tax evasion. $300 billion a year laundered. Anonymity in transactions and funds transfer via shell companies is cited as the primary cause and threat. Moreover, nearly two-thirds of all international transactions are made in U.S. dollars, most of which, at some point, pass through the clearing channels of financial institutions in New York or London. In the U.S., it's particularly susceptible to, as a money laundering destination. Similarly, the U.K. They estimate, by virtue of their role as a global financial center, that realistically the scale of money laundering impacting the U.K. annually is in the tens of billions of pounds. Together, U.S. and U.K. are also the money laundering centers of the world. And I know you think of all the traditional offshore financial centers, right? Great swaths in the Caribbean, Switzerland, Cyprus, Malta, Dubai, Singapore, Hong Kong, BVI, they're outliers compared to the UK and US, not that they don't have their role. So really, out of these nine centers, only the latter two offer sufficiently deep financial markets to handle the volume being laundered. And these same two countries, when compared to the other seven, are also the jurisdictions with the strongest and most reliable court systems. But shell companies aren't the extent of it. To take full advantage of shell formations, beneficial owners need a means of concealing themselves behind layers, proxies, directors in name only, law firms, think (laughs) Mossack, Fonseca, and the Panama Papers, registered agents, and so on. Now, beneficial owner, all that means is the person or persons who ultimately own or control an asset, for example, a property or a company, and benefit from it benefit is the key here. The concept of beneficial ownership exists because the direct legal owner of an asset is not necessarily the person ultimately controlling and benefiting from the asset. For example, the direct legal owner of a residential property may be an anonymous company registered overseas. Registers of beneficial ownership can provide transparency and play actually a pretty essential role in the fight against corruption, tax evasion, money laundering. Now, systemic corruption typically facilitates the extraction of large amounts of state-owned enterprises, right? We know this. A number of years ago, uh, journalist Nova Vremya interviewed a Russian whistleblower, uh, Sergei uh, Kolosnikov, who said with Russian kleptocracy under Putin, It is not uncommon for serious dark money, his term, to be concealed under no fewer than 20 to 30 shell corporations. And in testimony to the U.S. Helsinki uh, Commission, one law enforcement professional told of a U.S. Secret Service agent following up on what appeared to be a very routine complaint by a financial institution was about a stolen check being deposited into a checking account at one of the bank's branches. When that agent went to examine the bank account into which the check was deposited, the account was found to belong to a Florida company with no apparent actual business. Many, many, many court orders and subpoenas later, $1 billion was found to have been transferred between 80 subcompany accounts. So let's pick up some of the shells Wirecard executives have left littered around the world and take a look. Uh, we have the Paradise Papers and the Panama Papers and a few others to thank for some of this information, as well as investigative reporting by the London Times, by Reuters, and of course, the good old Zotera Report and the FT and several other sources. Now, bear in mind that Herr Braun and Herr Marsalek, along with former Wirecard CFO Le, all appear to have not only known about these shell companies their executive colleagues had created, but were seemingly complicit as some of them would serve as vehicles for the laundering or concealing of monies derived from Wirecard's core customer base. Gambling, porn, questionable pharmaceuticals, marijuana products, binary options. You've heard it all before. Wirecard used to offer its more challenging APAC customers the option of creating mirror entities in the UK, Liechtenstein, and Switzerland. And this was for the purpose of running through otherwise highly risky transactions that MasterCard and other major credit card companies would otherwise block. Recall, we had some Wirecard managers out in APAC who held dozens of domains for internet porn sites and ongoing gambling. Always good to keep in the family. Now, remember Rudiger Trotman, Wirecard's former COO, 2005 to 2010, uh, the one convicted of money laundering in Israel? Go back to episode four if you've forgotten. Now, you know what I've been saying all along. Wirecard was never intended to be a legitimate company. It was always about the laundering. Well, Trotman joined Wirecard as its COO in 2005, just as the company is really kicking off with Braun and Marsalik. And recall the undisclosed Wirecard entity known as Wirecard UK Limited that Trotman had conveniently forgotten to, <laughs> to mention to shareholders and a lot of other folks? And remember Michael Schutt, our German national who took up residence in Florida and moved money from online gambling sites through his myriad of shell companies, using Wirecard as the primary destination for funds after tumbling them through some small Floridian banks? He, who was caught by the U.S. Secret Service, pled guilty to running an unlicensed money service business and then turned state witness – also, see episode four – Okay. Remember, Shoot led us to Blue Tool, a UK shell company that Troutman overlapped with UK Wirecard UK Limited. And remember, Blue Tool and Wirecard UK Limited, they shared shareholders, officers, officers, a company secretary. This was the setup involving Blue May, another UK shell company designed to be the front for laundering illicit gambling proceeds through Wirecard Bank. Now, in that old prior episode, we looked at how Wirecard execs tied into shell entities that owned binary option scam sites, porn, drugs, gambling, and recall how so much of it would ultimately manage to zip through Cypriot shell companies. Remember the big U.S. federal criminal case against uh, Alamzan Tuktokhanov out of the Southern District of New York a number of years ago? You know, where tens of millions of dollars in illicit gambling proceeds from Russia were run through shell companies in Cyprus and then, quote, invested by shell companies back into the U.S. Okay, and remember Troutman and another former Wirecard exec, Jörg Paul Suter, who was the Wirecard's MD of communications, how they were implicated in money laundering and embezzlement cases that the Swiss AG's office brought? (laughs) Yeah, now it's all coming back to you. Okay. So, recall Dietmar Nochelman, our thug executive of Wirecard, former CEO of Wirecard Payment Solutions. He is business partners with Bulgarian Christo Georgiev. Now, Georgiev is the one with ties to Russian organized crime, and Georgiev and Nokelman tie back to Wiegand and Shoot. Phew, we're just trying to remember the ground we've already covered, right? <laughs> okay, so let's head to the UK to start with. We're going to a small town in the county of Durham. Now, for those of you not certain of where this is, Durham's in the northeast of England, and Consett is a wee little former industrial town of less than 30,000 people total. Now, what is extraordinary about Consett is that in the absence of any other viable employment opportunities, more than 400 of Consett's citizens became directors in name for over 1,000 shell companies. And through these shell companies, millions of pounds have been run. The business types will be familiar to listeners as they include, again, online gambling, porn, nutraceuticals, binary options, so on and so forth. Now, some of these shells are still going, although the UK's regulator of businesses, what was then the Department of Business Innovation and Skills, cracked down after several money laundering cases. And several of these touched Wirecard. Now, these directors in name only sitting in concert, they're directors in name only of these shell companies. They didn't actually know they were being used because what they were being paid to do is technically not illegal in the UK. Yes, the UK rolled out a register of people with significant control, PSC, and there's a registrar, a PSC. But there are still some gray areas that allow for exploitation ways to circumvent PSC. Now, some of the good citizens of Consett had been approached by a man named Simon Dawson. Dawson was a company's formation agent, and he ran two companies in town, uh, Brinken Merchant Incorporation, otherwise known as BMI, and EMB Management Solutions, or EMB, banal, forgettable, And that is helpful when forming the first layer by which to obscure clients who seek out your corporate formation services come up with a generic sounding name. All right. BMI and EMB, under Dawson's direction, created shell companies for people around the world. And then Dawson paid folks from concerts small amounts of money to serve as the directors of these companies and receive posts for them. The post then went back to BMI and EMB to be routed onto the true beneficial owners. Dawson would form the companies, fill out and file annual corporate returns, tax forms, all the things designed to make these shell companies appear legitimate, at least by first glance of UK regulators. The true beneficial owners, they were in Africa, Central America, Russia, elsewhere in the UK, and so on. Now, Dawson, interestingly, had cut his teeth in business working as an internet merchant payment processor on the Isle of Man, the same place as several executives from Wirecard got their start, and right around the same time. So, too, Henry O'Sullivan, remember Wirecard Masala, Henry O'Sullivan, OCAP, Senjo, well, OCAP is owned by an Isle of Man firm, Delphinium Capital. Oh, and listen, listeners, the island, it's not so large that you wouldn't know who else was in the biz. Dawson's specialty in the payment processing world? Helping online merchants collect money for high-risk transactions. By now, I shouldn't have to tell you what those are. Okay, much of what Dawson did with BMI and EMB was a continuation of the services he had offered on the Isle of Man. But now he really needed layers to help obscure the dodgy proceeds from the likes of MasterCard, Access, and Visa, lest they figure out that he was concealing forbidden transactions from them. Where does Wirecard come in? Beyond just the nexus to time in the same business and in the same place as Wirecard execs? Dawson formed Blue Tool Limited, Listing a local concert school teacher, Gail Hope, as the sole, sole director. Now, Blue remember Michael Shute and Troutman, and remember some 70 million in illicit monies moved from Wirecard to players in the US and Canada via shell companies, of which Blue Tool was the primary shell. Uh huh. But there's much more to this. Dawson. Also, had Miss Hope, who does appear to be a complete innocent in this, not Dawson, but Miss Hope, serve as a director in name to a number of other shell companies, including Eagle Nation Limited, Parterre Aroma Media Limited, really, who comes up with this, Blue May Enterprises. Well, let's focus on Blue May for a minute. According to British Insolvency Services, and they're the entity tasked with bankrupt companies in the UK. Blume owned a gaming website called SevenRed.com on behalf of an Israeli named Ido Raviv. Now, Raviv was living in the UK at the time. Blume reported profits of just hundreds of pounds, 2011-2012. Only hundreds. But when investigators found credits in his bank account totaling 36-plus million euros over that same period, they had some questions. Now, Raviv is tied to another Russian, a Russian-Israeli, Alaya Alepyeva. Hold that thought. Now, Blume Enterprises Limited, its initial shareholders of the company, that is the shareholders of Blume, were Formoya Limited, a company registered in the BVI, and BMIE Limited. Now, these shares were all transferred, right, Formoya and BMI. These were all transferred to Alepiva in 2010. In 2012, Alepiva transferred her shareholdings to Sapphire Management Holdings Limited and Maple Management Limited, both of which are companies registered in the Seychelles. Hmm. On 2013, Sapphire Management Holdings Limited and Maple Management Limited transfer the shares to BlueMay Enterprises NV, a company registered in the Dutch Antilles. Huh. Now, in 2011, BlueMay had entered into an agreement with a principal, BlueMay Enterprises NV, right, the Dutch Antilles, whereby the former would hold a website, SevenRed.com, on trust for the latter. And any income derived from this website would be the property of the principal. The principal is under control of the un- ultimate beneficial owner, and sitting under the Fermoya and BMI BMIE shareholders, no fewer than twenty-five LLCs. Now, Alampiva is tied to a number of other UK shell companies and a shell company in Malta, Red Tiger Limited. And both Raviv and Alephia's address for the related entity Blue Tool. Well, it's in the Bahamas. Yeah, they all share it. And it happens that Miss Alephiva, she was the director of marketing for Betsoft and CasinoRoom.com, tied to PartyCasino.com. <laughs> you keeping track? But wait, there's more. Because the company secretary for Blue May, it was Burnwood Limited in the BVI. And Burnwood also happened to be the corporate secretary for Wait For It. Wirecard UK Limited, the one Herr Trotman set up. Oh, and one of Fermoy and BMI's officers? Trotman. That's right, whilst he was still a Wirecard exec. Now, Ravi shares a registered patent dating back to like 2008 for online automatic gaming system. It offers players side games. And he shares that with a number of other uh, Israelis and Russian Israelis. Uh, and the company they formed for that patent, Templeton Intertrade Inc., well, it had an address in Tortola in the Virgin Islands. Now, the sole recorded director of Blume Enterprises since incorporation, it's been one guy in concept, Scott Baldwin. But Baldwin did not have an active role in the management of the company. He was just director in name only. When UK investigators from the BIS went to Raviv's home to interview him back in 2013, remember, Raviv's the, probably the real beneficial owner here, at least at the one entity, spoke only briefly with them, and then he promptly fled the country. <laughs> he then told investigators via an email that he'd gone to Israel for family reasons, but a month later a third party forwarded to the BIS an email from Mr. Raviv, wherein Mr. Raviv stated that he was now residing in Kazakhstan and was a non-resident of the UK and no longer had any business in the UK. So when BIS got around to shutting down May in 2014, they had to shut down 10 more companies that May and BMI had founded. And that is the tip of the proverbial iceberg. Here are some of the Wirecard execs who either were the BOs of shell companies linked to companies using Wirecard to move proceeds of illicit or risky transactions or their involvement. Alexander Herbst, CEO or CFO of Wirecard 2000 to 2004. He's linked to Deutsche Payments, IPSP Limited, a Wirecard partner. But he also ran Race Union Limited, eHosting 2006 Limited, Hosting Tama Limited, 24-7 VOIP Limited, Pilato Limited, Automatum Limited, Cash and Card Limited, Oval 2123 Limited. Oh, and some of those? Yeah, they had an interesting ownership, in part, thanks to Herbst, Wirecard Gibraltar. Oh, and Herbst? Owned in part by Wirecard Gibraltar, Trink Bay Accounting Services Limited. Hmm. Mm-hmm. You're right to raise an eyebrow. Now, Troutman also Remember Trotman? Okay, he also established four separate companies in Ireland, all conveniently with the same address as the secret Wirecard UK and Ireland entity. Now, remember Wirecard UK and Ireland? That was formed back in 2006. Remember, folks, this has been a laundromat all along. The address they all shared a formation company in Dublin. Now, Troutman was also an officer of a UK company, Fantazil Europe Limited, that became came known as Crores UK. Uh, now, it's spelled with a K, but a crore in India is is uh, mil- is, is the what we would say. Uh, Uh, A million. Okay. Troutman and another former Wirecard employee would then establish Coors Limited Ireland, Coors Cards Private Limited in India, and remember, go back to Masala, and Coors LLC in the US. Now, Coors Ireland used Wirecard UK and Ireland's address, but would then be sold to Wirecard AG. And the director of these odd crore entities alongside Troutman? Another former KPMG guy, Vanette Kachel. Now, crores appeared in a federal criminal case out of the Southern District of New York. Why? Money laundering proceeds through Union Bank of the Philippines. Now, remember they who had employees faking wirecard accounts on behalf of Marsalek? Well, proceeds seized in that criminal investigation came from accounts at UB Philippines in the name of CoreCard, Inc. Now, Trotman and Nokelman together held a series of companies that included internet gambling entities and a dozen incorporations of seemingly unrelated entities, but all tied to Wirecard subsidiaries, such as Wirecard Communications, via their formation agents and a revolving door of officers who held roles at various shell companies and at Wirecard, frequently simultaneously. Michael Brinkman, former MD of Wirecard Technologies and besties with Troutman, he incorporated companies in Switzerland whilst working for Wirecard and held roles in Troutman's other companies simultaneously. Oh, and like Marcus Braun, he too was former KPMG. And Nokelman. He directed the Berkshire Trust Company Limited, registered in Barbados. He formed that in 2010. He was also director of Translux Holding Limited, a shell company out of Cyprus. Trotman also had shell companies in Cyprus, including an entity he held with Nokelman, formed there, known as PowerCash 21. Senior Wirecard execs either convicted of money laundering or tied explicitly to someone who was. And these executives, or former executives, we should say, these are the ones that came before Braun, Marsalik, Leia and Company. Yeah, There was eCredit Plus, remember them out of Bahrain, remember uh, as Ashazi Services UK Limited incorporated in the Isle of Man, right? Remember, there's one of O'Sullivan again. Oh, and Christopher Bauer with Ashazi. Remember all of this? Okay. Hoken Hockrein, another f- chair, former chair of Wirecard, he shared shell, shell company addresses with Shoot, our man in Florida. But unlike many corporate chairmen, Herr Hockrein is associated with dozens of porn domains as well as multiple European payment companies, or at least their shells, including some in the U.K., Connected to the, some one of these UK shell companies, another German, Friedrich Freddy, to his friends, Calder. Calder, tied to shoot shell companies. Remember Ray uh, Hamid, Ray to his friends, Akhavan and Ruben Weigon, indicted just this year for money laundering, Southern District again. The list goes on. When combined, shell companies and the internet provide an open path to money laundering. The ease with which micro-merchants can now set up really fabulous-looking websites and claim to be, for instance, payment processors, um, means that really large credit companies and banks struggle to conduct due diligence and understand the origins of the proceeds moving through. FinTech companies, such as Wirecard, who aggregate payments for these online realtors, retailers, remember those companies Aquivan and Wyland, set up to camouflage the proceeds from cannabis? Perfect example. Hidden behind a cascade of shell companies, forming a Byzantine system by which the underlying merchant or transnational criminal organization is obscured, well, at least to the larger banking entity. Transa- transaction laundering, fintech, shell companies, you couldn't dream of a better troika. I mean, really, that's what it comes down to. You know, if we think about it, once again, Wirecard. Always destined to be a laundromat. And that's all the time we have today. Next week, we have a whole new topic. We'll see you for Wirecard Eleven. Tom?
0: Kyle, this has just been great. I um uh, our weather here is still in the mid eighties, so I'm thinking about a short trip to Galveston and a walk on the beach, and perhaps I'll, I'll get as beach. lucky as well. <laughs>
1: Pick up some lovely shells for me, will you, Tom?
0: It's a deal. Thanks
1: again. (laughs) Thank you.
0: As I said in the introduction, Mikhail, Ryder, Gordon, and myself are going to be taking a deep dive on the Wirecard case over the next several weeks. I hope you will join us again. This special podcast series will focus on the events on the ground and each week, and then we're going to take a deep dive. Some of the topics we're going to cover include Germany Inc., the regulatory response, what this means for the overall fintech and EU regulatory world, and a variety of other interesting angles to the Wirecard case. I hope you will stick with us throughout this series. I know you will find it incredibly enjoyable as this is one of the largest frauds uh, since the Enron Worldcon days and the largest accounting fraud in Germany since World War II. It's going to be a ton of fun. Thanks again for listening. Uh, Please leave us a review. We would greatly appreciate that on iTunes.
1: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.